0: Why don't you open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 29, which doesn't seem Christmassy, I know. And yet in this series, we're following God's people on the long road, the longest night from Babylon to Bethlehem. And we find ourselves in Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah is writing a letter to God's people who are found in exile in this pagan land, encouraging them on how they should live now that they are a long way from home. If you're a note taker this morning, maybe you grabbed the notes on your way in, in those little uh, racks by the doors, or opened up the Three Crosses app to take some notes. And just to get us started, I'm going to give you the first blank right now. You ready? Sometimes God's truth is hard to believe. Write that down. Sometimes God's truth is hard to believe. These last few weeks as I've been reading through the Christmas story, I've been trying to place myself in the shoes of the believers in the first century who heard this word about Jesus and the nativity for the first time. My thoughts went to Joseph, where in Matthew chapter 1, we hear that he finds out that his fiancee Mary is pregnant. He knows it's not his child. He knows he should divorce her quietly. And yet an angel of the Lord shows up to Joseph in a dream and says, don't be afraid to take Mary home to be your wife. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And I wondered as I read that, if that message in Joseph's dream was a message for Joseph that was hard to believe. Can you imagine what it would be like to be engaged to a woman and find out she is pregnant, to know it has nothing to do with you, and then to have a dream where an angel tells you that it's God's baby? It'd be hard to believe. I've never had a dream with an angel in it. Probably it's very clear, right? But imagine you had a child, and that child came to you and said, Mom, I have good news and bad news. It's actually both kind of good news. What seems like bad news is that my girlfriend is pregnant the good news, I had a dream last night, and God told me the baby was his. Like, I, there was no wrongdoing here. My, my girlfriend and I have never been together in that way, and yet God told me in my dream last night that the child within her is a supernatural child, that God himself conceived that child. And I know that's never happened before besides Jesus, and I don't want to compare this baby to Jesus, but... In my dream last night, God told me my girlfriend was pregnant with God's baby. What would you tell your son? Good for you. (laughs) Would you pen some sort of Magnificat? Would you say, this is amazing, a miracle, right? Or would you tell your child, that's just a dream. Get with it, right? Sometimes God's truth is hard to believe, even good news. A lot of the news that we read in the first chapter of Matthew is good news. We bring you good tidings of great joy that's for all the people. Today in the city of David, a child has been born. This long awaited Messiah is finally here. I wonder how hard it was for the people to believe the good news. You know, in this series, we're talking less about good news and more about bad news. That these people have been waiting for Jesus for 750 years after Isaiah's prophecy about the child who would be born. And God gave us bad news last week through Isaiah. You messed up, God said. You're going to be punished, God said. You're going to experience silence, God said. I'm going to take you out, God said. And when the God of the universe gives us news like that, it's sometimes hard to believe the people found themselves captured by their enemies taken into babylon and the prophet jeremiah here in chapter 29 writes them a letter that the long story short version of the letter was welcome to babylon get ready to be here for a long long time if you're taking notes god's message for his children During a season of sin induced suffering, this season will be a long one. If you've ever been in a season where you messed up and you had to face the consequences spiritually, You made a mistake or you did something willful that was wrong and you disobeyed the Lord and you walked out and did your own thing and you hoped it would just be a blip in the storyline of your life, but it turned into this season of suffering because of your wrongdoing. The last thing you want to hear is that this season will abide for a long, long time. And yet that's precisely what Jeremiah says in chapter 29, verses 6 through 7. He tells the people who just arrived in this foreign city, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and daughters. Sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. In short, get ready to raise your grandkids in Babylon. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, Jeremiah says, you're in this pagan city because you messed up. And I want you to know that God Almighty says, you're going to suffer for a long, long time. If you've ever been in a season like that, you know that it feels unjust, the, the suffering that you're experiencing, right? You say, God, I know I did something wrong. God, I, I, I know I made a mistake. I know I did what I shouldn't have done. Everyone told me not to do it, but it seems unfair that you would allow me to suffer for so long over something I did that just took a moment the people in Jeremiah's day had this saying that they would share to one another that encapsulated how unfair they felt God was being towards them. It went like this. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now that sounds like a really weird saying. I don't know why they said it that way, but the gist of it was, they said, it, it, it's like we ate a lemon and our kids' mouths puckered. It seems unfair, right? We did something wrong, and our children are the ones who are paying the consequences. We made a mistake, and our grandkids have to face the music, God. Do you not understand how unjust it feels to make us settle for 70 years of captivity in this pagan land because we sinned? And some of you are in a season right now where you are suffering and you see your family facing the consequences and you go to God in the same way. You say, God, it seems like I messed up. Why do my kids have to suffer? I messed up. Why does my wife have to suffer? I messed up. Why are my grandkids paying the consequences? Shouldn't this be on me and me alone? God, this punishment seems seems unjust. It seems unfair. It seems too much. The question we wrestle with as we walk through these three chapters of Jeremiah this morning is, how can a God who says he loves his children allow his children to undergo such a hard level of suffering and consequences sometimes when we make mistakes, when we mess up, when we sin, when we turn from him in our lives? We're going to go to the scriptures for answers. A lot of times when we face hard times in life, uh, the, the answers we get are generally not from the scriptures, they're from our friends who have a thousand reasons why God has allowed us to suffer this way. Even after our first service this morning, I was talking to a gentleman who said, I, I suffered in my life, Danny, tell me, why did God allow this to happen to me? Right? And I had the thought, I don't know why this is happening to you, right? but for some reason when I suffer, everyone seems to know why things are happening to me. And my friends come to me and they say, Daniel, let me tell you why this is happening. You ever had that? I guess you've had that happen to you before. And that's true when we suffer for no reason, right? When you have this medical issue or when your kids are acting crazy and you haven't done anything wrong or when your parents are acting crazy, you haven't done anything wrong, right? But this is also true when our own sin gets us into trouble. It seems like the Christian opinions start coming out of the woodwork where everyone wants to tell us God's opinion, on why we're suffering and when it's going to end. What I wrote down in our notes this morning is that we tend to get two types of advice during these hard times. One, we get advice from the spiritually optimistic. You have spiritually optimistic friends? Are you going through a really hard time? and You say, I just feel like I messed up and this is my punishment. And they say, no, don't claim that. God has good for you. God's gonna get you out of this. He told me. It's like He told you. Why didn't He tell me? He's like He told me. <laughs> I claim the promises of God for you. I've got great plans for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope in the future. And you're like, thank you for preaching to me. How do you know? It's like God oh, just know. Right? It's optimistic. Like it's fun. The other types of friends we have are not as fun to listen to. They give us the holy reality check. These are our church friends. They say, "Let me let me tell you why you're suffering. It's cuz you did that thing we told you not to do. That's why." God said not to do that. You did it anyway. Now you're whining to me about why you're facing the consequences. They're called consequences for a reason. Sorry to give you the holy reality check, but there it is. That's less fun. And in times where we're going through hard times, even because of something we did wrong, we tend to gravitate towards the spiritual optimist. We find ourselves kind of drifting away from our church friends who told us not to get into that behavior to begin with, We drift towards our friends who are more spiritual in nature, who have got all this fluffy optimism for us. We drift away from church and preaching from the Bible, and we drift towards preachers who are going to tell us beautiful, fluffy things about unicorns and God's grace for us and never give us the hard reality check because we don't want that. We're suffering enough. We want some optimism. The same thing was true in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah sends this hard holy reality check to the people. He says, "You're in Babylon. You're facing the consequences for your sin. You're going to be there for 70 years. Get used to it." And yet there are other prophets, self-proclaimed prophets in the day of Jeremiah who said, "Don't listen to Jeremiah. He should be in jail. He's crazy." Don't unpack your suitcases. God says you're going to be out of there lickety-split. You're coming out of Babylon. You're not going to have any consequences. God loves you. He's got a wonderful plan for your life, and you're coming home soon. Get ready. Buy your plane tickets, as it were. You're coming home from the foreign land. Don't settle down. And Jeremiah says, get ready to raise your grandkids there. You're not coming home anytime soon. He doesn't say it in those words. What he does say in verses 8 through 9 is do not list do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I says the Lord, I have not sent them. Jeremiah says God has not sent the spiritual optimists to you. You called the spiritual optimist to yourself. You wanted fluffy news. You wanted some kind of beautiful optimism that your suffering would not be great. But the hard reality is you're suffering and it's going to be a while. You know, on one hand, we, we don't want the hard truth when we're in times of suffering. You know, Imagine you, you were in a season of your life where you just realized you weren't happy in your marriage. And so you told some of your Christian friends, you know what, I think, I think it's time for me to leave my wife, leave my kids. kind going to start fresh. And your church friends said, don't you dare do that. God hates divorce. God doesn't want you doing that. God has plans for you that include you reconciling with your wife. Make it work. We'll help you. Don't you dare step out on your family. But then your spiritually optimistic friends at work said, well, doesn't God want you to be happy, though? Seems like your wife's a drag. (laughs) And in that season, when you weren't thinking, right? You thought, sounds good to me. (laughs) Yeah, why is God, doesn't God want me to be happy? Doesn't God want my best life for me? My best life can't be with this woman. I'm sure God will understand, right? That's how God works. He's going to forgive me. It'll all be good, right? And so you made that decision, and you left your family and your church friends, said, listen, it's not too late. Go back, repent, turn around, go back with your wife. Try to reconcile. She'll still take you back. Just that window might be closing. Go back, go back, go back, right? And your spiritually optimistic friends said, you know what? I think God wants you to look forward, not backward. I It sounds like the life behind you was one that was worth leaving. Maybe it's time for you to meet someone new. Date my sister, right? The problem that Jeremiah draws out uh, about listening to fluffy optimism is that it's not true. Like It sounds nice. It makes us feel better. But at the end of the day, a hard truth is better than a soft lie. Jeremiah says, he doesn't say this, but I'll say for him, I know the news I have for you is not good news. But it's true. You're going to suffer for a while. Your choices led to this. 70 years, you're going to be in captivity. God wants you to learn your lesson. Now, the problem you may have experienced as you listen to the optimistic people in your life is they kept promising your life would get better, but it never did. And your life still stinks, and it's been two years, or two months, or three years, or three months, or six years, or six months. And you feel like, everyone keeps telling me, God has some wonderful plan for me, but it's not coming together. I feel like, I feel like the reality check, folks, might be right. Jeremiah says, I'm right. You're going to be in Babylon for 70 years. And they work. Now, the hard reality check that Jeremiah gives to the people is, your season of suffering may be long, but it won't be forever. Your season of suffering may be long, but it won't last forever. He says in verse 10, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. If you're in this room this morning and you're experiencing a season of suffering, of darkness, of quiet in your spiritual life because of something you did wrong, there's a chance that God is telling you that same truth, that your season of silence, of suffering, it might be a long one. It won't be forever. And though it might be better to listen to the optimistic answers... The hard truth is better than a soft lie. And sometimes it's good for us to face reality. You know, for some reason in the church, it feels like we should give people fluffy, spiritual, optimistic answers. Where in the real world, we don't want that at all. All Imagine you found some kind of growth on your body and you went to the doctor to biopsy it. And the doctor came back and said, I want to meet with you one-on-one. I want to go over these test results to you in person. Your heart's beating. And you sit down in the doctor's office. And the doctor comes out and says, you know what? I consider myself an optimist. You're a good person. I think things are going to be just fine for you. You're like, thanks, doc. What's the test result say? So you know what? I don't want to talk about test results. I want to talk about the human spirit. You've got resolve. You've got some get up and go. I can see it in you, and, and you can beat this thing. We can beat this thing. And you're like, great. What's this thing? What did you pull out of my body? You know what? Sometimes it's good to just look on the bright side. We don't want optimism. We want the truth. And in our relationship with God, a lot of times we like to settle for the optimistic answers because we don't want to face the hard reality that our lives might stink for a while. Because we know the God of the universe holds everything in his hands, and if he has ordained this for us, that he might keep us in it for as long as he wants to. Not only is that not fun, but that brings up some harder questions about why. Why would God let someone like me suffer? Isn't God supposed to love us? Isn't God supposed to be for his children? Isn't he supposed to be for me? Doesn't he have plans to prosper me, not to harm me? This feels like he's harming me. And the hard question that emerges when we face the hard truth is that if we are God's children, why would he treat us like his enemies? This is what came up with the people of Israel in Jeremiah's day was they felt like they were being treated like the enemies of God. They felt like they were being captive or taken captive like the Assyrians, like the Babylonians, should be taken captive. And yet they're supposed to be God's kids. They're supposed to be in an everlasting covenant with God, but he's treating them like he treats his enemies. It's not fun to feel like your heavenly father is treating you like his enemies. And Jeremiah comes back to the people who are wrestling with this injustice of their suffering. And he tells them, God treats us this way because we deserve it. God treats you this way because you deserve it. He says, this is what the Lord says. There's no one to plead your cause. No remedy for your sore. No healing for you. All your allies have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. I have struck you as an enemy would. I have punished you as would the cruel, because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Why do you cry out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done this to you. And we, we don't like a picture of God saying that to his children. We, we like a picture of God saying, I'm so sorry you're experiencing this. Let me, let me help you out of this. I'd fix it if I could, right? But, but this God is a God who takes responsibility. I have done these things to you. I have struck you as an enemy would. I did this because you deserve it. He comes back and he says, hey, God treats us this way because he loves us. (laughs) Right before, he says, I I am with you, I'll save you. Though I completely destroy all the nations among you, which I scatter you, I will not destroy you. I will discipline you, but only with justice. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. God says, you deserve this. And I'm doing it because I love you. Now he's starting to sound like a parent. Now this hurts me more than it hurts you. I know this hurts, but discipline creates a harvest of righteousness. I, I know you don't like it, but nobody likes discipline at the time. I'm only doing this because I love you. And God says this isn't punishment. This is, this is discipline the season that you're experiencing where you made some dumb choices and now you're reaping the consequences. This is a season of discipline from your heavenly Father. God says, I'm not punishing you like an enemy that I'm going to utterly destroy. I'm treating you like my child who needs to learn a lesson. You know, that's what makes us squirm because we don't like to consider ourselves children who need to learn lessons. We like to be adults. You remember what it was like to be grounded by your parents when you were a kid? We feel like we've grown up past that. And yet God says, sometimes I discipline those who I love. Discipline's a weird thing. You know, some of us grew up in households where our parents disciplined us unjustly and too hard and the wrong way. And so this whole idea of God disciplining us has a sour taste in our mouths. Others of us just grew up hating discipline because discipline stinks, right? And so we just committed, I'm never going to do that to my children. And then our children say, whatever you did to them, I'm never going to do that to my children, right? And we're going to go on and on and on. And God says, I I discipline my children. You mess up, you're going to experience the consequences. And that season of discipline might be long. I had a buddy in high school whose dad was notorious for really long seasons of discipline. We called it like his sentencing, <laughs> his groundation is what we called it. remember one time he like snuck out and his dad grounded him for a month and then he like got a bad grade on a test and his dad extended it another month and then he talked back at dinner and his dad extended it another month and, and then we went out to Boy Scout camp for a week and on the way home his dad was driving and I realized, hey, it's, it's August now, his, his discipline is over and I said it out loud. It's August now, your groundation, it's over. And his dad turns around in the car and says, you think your grounding is over? Another month, right? <laughs> and then he smiled and said, just kidding. And then he kind of looked at him like, but am I? Right? <laughs> discipline is meant to do something good in our lives. And, and if you've ever had children that you've had to discipline at like a teenage level or not just like a two-year-old level. I have not, but what I've noticed is that discipline kind of works in stages, right? And this is just Danny's theory on discipline, but this might help you as a parent or as a child, this might help you get out of punishment. So listen to this very carefully. I feel like oftentimes when it comes time to discipline our children, stage one is like the anger stage, you know, like your kid's out, they took the car, they went out too late, they didn't ask you permission, they get home at two in the morning, and you're like sitting there in the dark, and they come in the front door, and you're like, go to your room, we'll talk about it in the morning, right? You, wait, you waited up all night long just to say, go to your room, I'll talk to you in the morning, right? <laughs> and then the next morning, you're like, so what happened last night? Like, nothing. Like, listen, we're going to talk about this, you're grounded. It's like, What? You're crying, this is so unfair, right? Anger, stage one. You're so unfair, right? Walk away, slam the door, open it again, slam it again. Jump on their beds, kick the walls, right? Like, ah, I'm so bad at you, right? That's stage one of <laughs> discipline. Stage two is when it becomes eerily quiet in there. <laughs> and then they come out of their room and they just kind of look at you like, just so you know, you and I, we're not talking anymore eat some cereal, go back to their room, (laughs) close the door. It's quiet. And it's nice to have quiet, but that's no fun. right, stage three is when they start to come out and pretend to like you again because they want their discipline to be over soon. Hi, Mom, how are you? Good. Are we talking again? Oh, yeah. How was your day, Mom? There's something suspicious here, Stage four, they start like doing really nice things around the house to try to win your affection back and end their groundation sooner, right? Like you hear vacuuming. You're like, is that, a- we have a vacuum? What is that, huh? <laughs> And as a parent, right, as you walk through those four stages of discipline, every parent has their own breaking point, right? Some parents break at stage one. Like, oh, you're angry at me? No, 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 you're not grounded anymore. Some parents break at stage two. I can't take the silent treatment anymore. Some parents break at stage three, right? Like, oh, we're pretending to be nice. It's fine. Let's just pretend. This is nice, right? Some people stage four, they let leave, linger as long as possible. Like, clean the whole house. Clean the vacuum. I love stage four. The truth is, I think as God's children, sometimes we walk through those stages in the same way in our relationship with the Lord as we experience discipline for something wrong we've done. We start out angry at God, and then we give him the silent treatment. God, you know what? I'm not even going to go to church anymore. This is how you're going to treat me? Let's see how you like it when I'm not coming to your place on Sundays. I'm going to watch football. (laughs) I'm not going to pray, right? Stage three, you start to squirm a little bit, like, I don't like this, right? I'm just going to pretend like God and I are fine, even though I've got so much stuff I'd rather bring to him. And you come to church, and you sit there, and you sing the songs, like, hey, God, look, it's cool, okay, stop the discipline, right? Then stage four, God's not listening, so you start serving all over the place, trying to win back God's affection. If I just do enough good things, maybe God will end this groundation that I'm in, in my life with him. None of us are perfect parents, but God is. And God does the perfect thing. He waits until stage five. Now, Stage five is like the white whale of disciplining children. It's the one that you have heard about but never really seen. It's the one where the kid finally drops the vacuum, comes back and finds you in the living room and says, Mom... I'm sorry I took, uh, I can't even say it. I'm sorry I took the car. It was wrong. I've been trying to do my own thing. It's hard for me to live in your house because you've got rules, but I need to learn how to respect your rules, and I do respect you. You've been a great parent, right? You're like, oh, this is stage three. And I was like, no, I mean it, I mean it, I, I don't deserve to have freedom. I understand. I'll take whatever punishment you give me. I just want you to know that I'm sorry. And, and I will try to do better next time. I, I don't know why I overreacted. I just need to calm down and trust your leadership in my life, right? We, we would love for our kids to get to that stage. And that stage is called Repentance. When your change of mind is so complete that it results in a change of action. And this is the stage that God is waiting for as his people sit in Babylon. And they yell at him and they fight him and they do their own thing and they try to serve him. and God says, your discipline will come to completion once you calm down. You change your mind about what you did. And your life starts to reflect that a change has happened in your heart. He even says in Jeremiah thirty-one eighteen, when he's forecasting the people's return, he says, I've heard Ephraim's moaning. You disciplined me like an unruly calf, and I've been disciplined. Restore me, and I will return, because you are the Lord my God. God is waiting for his people to hit stage five and have a change of heart. Well, for those of us in this room who are in a season of suffering right now because of something we've done wrong, and what stage are you in? Have you gotten to the point that your heart has like, and you've come to the Lord and said, God, I, I messed up. Right? if you're a Christian in this room, you've come to this point with your entire life, Right? I said, You had a moment where you said, God, I've been doing my own thing, and I'm sorry. This isn't working. I want to follow your path. I want you to take my sin. I want to walk towards you and with you for the rest of my life, wherever you might lead me. That's a moment of surrender, of repentance, of trust in Christ. And yet some of us who are believers, who enter into seasons of consequence for our actions, need to have a similar conversation with the Lord about the thing that happened. Not just to end the punishment, but because our hearts have been affected by the discipline God brought upon us. And the, the beautiful thing about discipline and repentance and going through that process is that on the other side of it is transformation. My encouragement for you is that if you get to the other side of repentance, if you get to the other side of accepting the lot in life that God has given you right now, that there's promises on the other side. Right after Jeremiah says, you're going to go in Babylon for 70 years, he says, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future. When you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's coming a time on the other side of repentance when you will look back and you will see that your discipline was just. Jeremiah brings this out. He says, you know that saying you have, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the teacher's te- children's teeth are set on edge? In those days, there's coming a day where instead people will say this, everyone will die for his own sins. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. That you're going to realize that what I meted out to you was not unfair, it was not unjust, I wasn't punishing your children for your sins, you suffered because you messed up and your kids They'll have their own consequences for their own actions. God was perfectly just in the discipline he gave you. There's coming a day where you'll realize your discipline was just. There's coming a day when you will see that your discipline was actually helpful As these people come back from Babylon and they re-enter their holy city and they start to rebuild and they're clinging to God's promises, they're learning the lessons that they've learned in Babylon and applying them to their lives. They're trying to follow God with whole hearts. They're trying to do it right this time. They're trying not to mess it up again. We're going to start talking these next few weeks about these people returning from their punishment and building a life for themselves and serving the Lord in the process. Their discipline changed them. It was helpful And finally, there's coming a day when you will see that your discipline was merciful. And God did not treat you as your sins deserved. God's discipline was perfect. God's discipline was helpful in your life. And yet God's discipline was less than you earned with your bad behavior. And we think of Jesus coming to earth. The reason he came to earth was to take the punishment for our sins. That we had done wrong. We had eaten sour grapes. We had bit the lemon. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm not going to make your face pucker for your sins. I'm going to take that on myself. So Jesus walks the earth. He allows himself to be handed over to death on the cross so that our sin was given to him as his punishment. As we understand this reality we have with Christ, we realize, wow. I've done so much wrong, and Jesus paid it all. And yet when I sin, I face these natural consequences, which is just for a time, it brings good into my life, it's helpful, and it's way less than I deserve. The discipline I received was merciful. God forecasts this as the people come out, or prepare to come out of Babylon. He says the time is coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This new covenant we see in the work and ministry of Jesus.